Exodus chapter 32. There is no greater joy for a human being than to walk in the presence of God. There is no greater joy for a human being than to walk in the presence of God. This privileged access is provided for God's people by the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ who paid the full penalty of our sin. This access is provided, secondly, by the resurrection of Jesus, who as our great high priest represents his people before the throne of God, who covers us with his own righteousness and welcomes us to stand forgiven before the throne of God. And as we journey to our final destination, God's Holy Spirit dwells within our hearts and He witnesses the truth of our redemption and He guides us to follow the Father's will. What a privileged joy it is to walk with God, to sense His presence, to benefit from His decisive leading, to experience His hand of blessing upon our lives. But the problem is, we pretty routinely lose the sense that God is with us, don't we? It makes sense when we wander away from God, when we want Him to leave us alone, when we purposely choose to indulge sinful desires over intimacy with Him, that makes sense that God would seem absent then. We want Him there. We want Him gone. But I'm talking about those difficult seasons when it seems that God has wandered away from us. We long to know His will, and He reveals nothing. We crave the privilege of prospering in His service, reaching the lost and building up believers, but God seems so distant. He does not move. We long to exalt in His presence in worship and prayer, but nothing seems to happen in our soul. We are anxious for God's rescue in a situation in our lives, but He does not visit us. We know God rules from heaven's throne. It's not that. We know that He's there, that our doctrine says and is true, that He is everywhere present. We understand this, but it's those times when we do not sense His presence. We're frustrated by His inaction and discouraged by His seeming lack of interest in His people. It happens, doesn't it? And let me say, in light of the passage that is before us today, that these are dangerous seasons of life. Seasons in which we are often tempted with spiritual impatience. Rather than waiting on God, it's our natural bent to try to force His hand or to seek an answer that He has not provided. It is in this unenviable position that we find the Israelites at the foot of Mount Sinai in Exodus chapter 32. And it is here that we witness their shocking response to their sense of divine abandonment. They are dealing with spiritual impatience. And it is a debacle from the start. It is a shocking response to God. 
It was only a few weeks earlier that the nation of liberated slaves had entered covenant with God. If you want to keep your finger here in 32 and go back to chapter 24, chapter 24 and verse 7. Exodus 24 and verse 7. We read here that Moses takes the book of the covenant 24-7 and he reads it in the hearing of the people. And what do they say? All that the Lord has spoken we will do and we will be obedient. We don't hear from Israel again until chapter 32. Verse 8, Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, Behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Then Moses and Aaron and Nadab, Abihu, 70 of the elders of Israel, went up and they saw the God of Israel. We have that glorious vision there in verse 10. Under his feet there is a pavement of sapphire stone like the very heaven for clearness, a glorious vision that never looks at God, never tells us who he is. So glorious is his presence. But then we read that, they, that he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. He should have. No one can stand in the presence of God because of our sin. But rather, they beheld God and ate and drank. They're in the presence of God and they're eating and drinking in fellowship with him. And God welcomes them into his presence. Chapter 24 In verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, Come up to me on the mountain and wait there that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandments which I have written for their instruction. So Moses ascends in verse 17 of this chapter. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on the top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Moses entered the cloud and went up on the mountain, and Moses was on the mountain forty days and forty nights. So Israel is meeting with God. She trembles in His presence. Her leader is there in the very presence of God, and her leadership is eating and drinking with God in His presence. They're very alive spiritually. Then in chapters 25 through 31, we have instructions for the tabernacle. And what is the key to the tabernacle? What is God doing here? It is, as we've noted in our studies through these chapters, God's presence with Israel. He proposes to come and dwell among them, the people, to come off the mountaintop and to be right there in the tabernacle with them in their presence. Now there's many stipulations as to how they will pursue Him, approach Him, but He will be there in their presence. Chapter 29 and verse 42, we see this emphasis so strongly. Chapter 29 and verse 42, I will meet with you to speak to you there. Verse 43, there I will meet with the people of Israel and be sanctified, and it shall be sanctified by my glory. Verse 45, I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God. Verse 46, at the end, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. God proposes clearly to dwell among the people. to Come with them here. And He has been doing so throughout. Go back to chapter 13 and verse 21. The tabernacle is new revelation. This unique presence of God among them is, is distinct. But back to chapter 13 and verse 21, God has been with them all along. 
Verse 21, the Lord went before them by day in a pillar of cloud to lead them along the way and by night in a pillar of fire to give them light that they might travel by day and by night. The pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night did not depart from before the people. Now back to chapter 32, we come back to the base camp of Israel and Israel is growing increasingly frustrated while Moses lingers with God on the mountain for 40 days. Israel has grown accustomed to God's presence in the cloud and with Moses' leadership, and at this moment, Israel is feeling a bit abandoned. Nothing's really going on now. This Moses, we don't even know where he is. So while the ink is still drying on God's blueprint for a tabernacle, tabernacle where he will reside with Israel, Israel is losing patience. And the first scene we find in chapter 32 is at the base camp where the people seduce Aaron. It is a time of spiritual impatience. We notice this coming out of verse 1. When the people saw that Moses delayed to come down from the mountain, the people gathered themselves together to Aaron and said to him, Up, make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. The Hebrew text indicates that Moses' delay had become embarrassingly long. As the days pile up, the people grow increasingly frustrated with this lack of leadership. We are the people of God, after all. God has been with us. He has been leading us. And now we have nothing. Everything's dry and dull, and we don't have any presence of God with us here. After Israel's bold assurances to God that she would keep His covenant and honor those terms, we're shocked to see her fall so quickly. In direct violation of the first two commandments, there's some debate on that, but Israel demands, as Alan Cole puts it, a God with a face. They want a God with a face, like all the other nations have. It reminds us as we look forward to Israel, who wants a king like all of the other nations. Here she wants a God with a face. Because right now she seems to have nothing. And the key is you notice in verse 1, and you see ideas popping out of there that we have looked at earlier. But the key here is that Moses isn't here. Moses is gone. He's delayed. And they don't want to live with this anymore. And talk about this man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt. So longing, now catch it here or we miss the whole thing. Longing for a sense of God's presence, the Israelites demand that Aaron correct the situation their way. In verse 2, we see the correction. They've called him to make these gods, and Aaron said to them, Take off the rings of gold that are in the ears of your wives, your sons, and your daughters, and bring them to me. So all the people took the rings of gold that were in their ears and brought them to Aaron. And he received the gold from their hand and fashioned it with a graving tool, and made a golden calf. And they said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Now, is it evil to want the presence of God? Clearly not. It's a wonderful thing. 
to sense his presence. And God's angel, in fact, chapter 14, chapter 23, chapter 33, is said to have gone before the people. They had this representative of God in the glory cloud that has led them out of Egypt, through the wilderness, to this place at the foot of Mount Sinai. There's nothing wrong with the presence of God and wanting the presence of God. But Israel is thinking here, as the doldrums set in, that every time God delivers us, Moses is at our head. He's leading us. And the glory cloud is walking before us. So it's the cloud, the presence of God and his angel, and it is Moses, his earthly messenger, who are always out in front of us. And right now, nothing's happening. God's glory is clearly seen, it would appear still, on Mount Sinai, but Moses is nowhere to be found. So while Moses is missing, the Israelites choose to create their own mediator of God's presence, this golden calf idol. So the calf essentially replaces Moses, and in the process is apparently elevated to divine status, where we read here, you're gods, O Israel, who brought you out of the land of Egypt. This calf is seen as a quick way to provide immediate access to the presence of God. It's also a visible, tangible presence that bypasses the special separation from God's glory that is provided in the tabernacle design. So if you will, it is a face. It is a God with a face. And it denies the holiness of God that is being prepared for in the tabernacle, this spatial separation in the way that we will approach God. Chapter, or verse 5. Verse 5, when Aaron saw this, he built an altar before it, and Aaron made proclamation and said, Tomorrow shall be a feast to the Lord. And they rose up early the next day and offered burnt offerings and brought peace offerings, and the people sat down to eat and drink and rose up to play. Notice here that it is a festival to Yahweh. It is a festival to the Lord. Israel is not abandoning God for polytheism here. They are corrupting worship. And when God's people start down the path of syncretism, the inevitable result is moral failure. They set this God up to worship God, to worship Yahweh, and the result is that they rise up to play, a Hebrew word indicating unrestrained sexual activity in the camp. This festival to God degenerates into an un restrained display of the flesh in a celebration that aped their pagan neighbors. And by manipulating a sense then of divine presence, Israel quickly falls far away from God, and that is the way it goes. We are reminded again here, this is a horrifying scene. We have read this before, certainly, as Bible readers, but this is a horrifying scene. And we must come back to its gravity. We must come, it reminds us, to God on His terms and in His timing. We must not permit impatience with God to lead us to design our own ways of approaching Him or our own ways of forcing His hand. God's way for Israel was the tabernacle. 
A tabernacle with its spatial separation to elevate the knowledge of the holiness of God. And it required patience. There would be time that would go into building this tabernacle and time that would go in every day into the approach to God. Israel throws all of that patience aside and says we want immediate access to God in our way. And that degenerates into sensuality. It is unholiness and impatience that presents itself here at the foot of the mountain. Now we've got to be cautious how we apply this point, but I think there are many churches in our day that flirt with this very scene. Far from it, certainly. It doesn't look precisely the same. But I think there is a temptation among churches to so crave tangible results that we can adopt worship practices that appeal to the world's sensual appetites and we can get people to respond. We see this in some of the more obvious ways of those churches that are bringing in readings from Buddha and from the Quran into their services to appeal to the pluralistic mindset of people in our day and it produces results. We see this at times at places where the music of the world and its presentation is no different than what is being presented in the church with its entertainment base and its icon celebration. And people respond. But what may be lacking is reverence for the holiness of God and at times clearly is lacking a reverence for the holiness of God. And you know what is also lacking, I think, many times? is patience. We become impatient with God to produce His unique results in His time and way, and we demand an immediate response at all times. I would not claim that it's the same as what is taking place here, but the parallels are fairly significant, I think, at times. A church's worship can become ritualistic and dry, and there is no virtue in that, but it can become just as easily oriented toward emotional arousal, unrestrained release, and the exaltation of performance. We must focus, as God's people, upon His holiness. To approach Him in the way He calls us to approach Him. If we think this narrative is simply a polemic against wild parties and drinking and dancing, we miss the point entirely. Wild revelry is simply the fruit of the deeper root of spiritual impatience and manipulating a sense of God's presence. And as well, let us say, sometimes is nothing more than caving in to what the world presents. But it's much deeper than simply setting up a few laws against unrestrained behavior. It's getting at the root of that unrestrained behavior, which is impatience with God. I want an immediate arousal, and I borrow from the world's ways because they're very schooled in that way of seeking happiness, and pleasure. We must be cautious as we pursue the holy God. We come back up on the mountain 
And here God confronts Moses. Verse 7, And the Lord said to Moses, Go down, for your people whom you brought up out of the land of Egypt have corrupted themselves. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made for themselves a golden calf and have worshipped it and sacrificed to it and said, These are your gods, O Israel, who brought you up out of the land of Egypt. Your people? Is that really fair? God says to Moses, your people have done this. If anything is obvious in this book, it is clear that the whole idea of delivering Israel and making them God's unique people is God's idea, not Moses. You remember Moses arguing with God. Not me. I want nothing to do with this, as God calls them. And now God says they're your people. Is that really fair? And Moses has had nothing to do with corrupting them. He isn't even there. He's up here on the mountain with God. It's kind of like, look what your kids have done, as one mate says to another. Look what your kids have done. And that's what God's kind of saying here. One other note in verse, as we look back to verse 5, Israel thought they offered sacrifices to God. We notice here in verse 8 that God sees the sacrifices as offered to the calf. He is pulling away from everything here. These are not offerings to me, and these are not even my people right now. They're your people, Moses. Well, it is the perhaps difficult spot of leadership. But God puts it right on Moses' shoulders. And the Lord said to him, verse 9, I have seen this people. Behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Picture of a rope on, let's say, a horse or a donkey, and you're pulling and pulling and pulling, and that donkey stiffens its neck against the rope. That's what these people are like. Now, therefore, verse 10, let me alone, that my wrath may burn hot against them, and I may consume them, in order that I may make a great nation of you. This is as shocking as the burning bush experience, and just as significant. Negatively, God proposes to destroy his chosen people. Positively, he proposes to make Moses the recipient of his promises to Abraham. It's a stunning proposal that would go directly to the head of a proud man, but Moses is no longer a proud man. He has become a great leader. And we notice his response in verse 11. He begins to argue with God. I use that word very cautiously. That's exactly what he's doing. And we could almost charge God with tempting Moses here, putting out before him the offer of a kingdom, to be the head of a kingdom, of God's kingdom. But Moses begins to argue with God at verse 11. Notice his argument. First point, verse 11, But Moses implored the Lord his God and said, O Lord, why does your wrath burn hot against your people whom you have brought out of the land of Egypt with great power and with a mighty hand? This is a ridiculous proposal, God. I mean, that's really what Moses is saying. This is to be ridiculed. It's not right. Are you going to destroy the nation that you've just saved? Think of all of these generations of time of Israel suffering in slavery for 400 years. You deliver them and now you're going to crush them? This makes no sense. 
His second argument, verse 12, why should the Egyptians say with evil intent did he bring them out to kill them in the mountains and to consume them from the face of the earth? Turn from your burning anger and relent from this disaster against your people. What's he saying? Think of what the pagans are going to say. Think of what they will do to your glory. It is the glory of God that is at stake here. Moses senses this. And he pleads with God to relent. Verse 13, Remember Abraham, Isaac, and Israel, your servants, to whom you swore by your own self and said to them, I will multiply your offspring as the stars of heaven and all this land that I have promised I will give to your offspring and they shall inherit it forever. What's his third argument? You promise God. You made a promise to Abraham, Isaac, and to Jacob. And it's really not going to look very good if it is now the promise to Moses. You gave your word. We have broken covenant with you. Don't break covenant with us. It's a powerful argument. And I think brings to our attention the way that prayer should work. A longing in Moses' heart for the glory of God. For God to vindicate and protect his own veracity. And so, verse 14, the Lord relented from the disaster that he had spoken of bringing on his people. I think that's nicely put here in the ESV. He had spoken of bringing it on. He had not decreed it as such, but he had spoken of it and draws Moses out here and in fact includes Moses in on the deliberation and the mercy that now is extended to Israel. So Moses anxiously pleads that the judge of all the earth will do right and that he will glorify his name. And God says, I will. I think we find here, don't we, an invitation to contend with God in prayer. To contend with God for his glory. This should identify our prayers. So often our prayers are a list of wants. God provide, do this for me, fix this for me. But we're encouraged here in Moses' example to pray to God in a different way, to contend with God, to glorify His name in this world. May our prayers be so heightened. It is an invitation to labor with God in carrying out His purposes here on earth. As Hamilton quotes Pascal as saying, God instituted prayer to lend His creatures the dignity of causality. The dignity of causality, that is, in our prayers we work with God to bring about His glory and purposes in this world. To lend His creatures the dignity of causality. We tread on holy ground when we pray like this. And Moses prevails with God. As God relents, he does not change his mind as such, but he genuinely responds to Moses' contentions. There is a real relationship here. God is not out there play-acting and pretending all of this. He is entering into real, legitimate conversation with Moses. And now we come back again to the base camp, where Moses corrects Israel 
in verse 15. Now think of this. What has Moses been doing as he presents the people? Now notice how he addresses the people. Verse 15, Then Moses turned and went down from the mountain with the two tablets of the testimony in his hand, tablets that were written on both sides, on the front and on the back they were written. The tablets were the work of God, and the writing was the writing of God engraved on the tablets. So Moses lugs the ten words, the ten sayings, down the mountain, and he heads back to camp with them. Here is God's word under his arm, as it were. Verse 17, when Joshua heard the noise of the people as they shouted, he said to Moses, there is a noise of war in the camp. But he said, it is not the sound of shouting for victory or the sound of the cry of defeat, but the sound of singing that I hear. He prepares Joshua for a very ugly scene. And as, verse 19, as soon as he came near the camp and saw the calf and the dancing, Moses' anger burned hot, and he threw the tablets out of his hands and broke them at the foot of the mountain. These broken tablets are not merely Moses losing it. He's breaking these tablets to demonstrate the covenant with God has been broken. No longer does Israel deserve to walk under these gracious words from God. God's law written by His own hand is one thing Israel cannot imitate. And now she will lose it. Verse 20, He took the calf that they had made and burned it with fire and ground it to powder and scattered it on the water and made the people of Israel drink it. We can't take time today to talk about why he did that and the possible reasons for it. Uh, it's a lengthy discussion, but suffice it to say here that the calf is not only destroyed, it is excreted in a most humiliating manner. Moses then confronts Aaron now, confronting the people, he turns to Aaron, their leader. And verse 21, Moses says to Aaron, What did this people do to you that you have brought such a great sin upon them? He's kind of saying, What on earth did they do to get you to lead them to such horrifying places? Israel's uncontrolled debauchery is justly ridiculed by the people around. What are you doing? Verse 22, Aaron said, Let not the anger of my Lord burn hot. You know the people that they are set on evil. For they said to me, Make us gods who shall go before us. As for this Moses, the man who brought us up out of the land of Egypt, we do not know what has become of him. Do you see the connection again? Moses is gone. Make us gods. The representative of God is not here. Let's come up with our own representative of God. There's a direct connection between calf and Moses. And verse 24, he says, So I said to them, Let any who have gold take it off. So they gave it to me, and I threw it into the fire, and out came this calf. It costs to worship God. It also costs not to. And once again, they hand in the plunder of Egypt for worship, this time for false worship. I don't think here that Moses, or that Aaron rather, is claiming to Moses that this was a miracle, that he threw this gold into the fire and out popped this calf. Remember, verse 4 says he used an engraving tool. Some have argued that this was, in fact, miraculous. He's using an engraving tool. It's, he's saying one of two things. Either he's just delusional, thinks Moses is delusional, and that this is just going to be some miraculous thing. 
but possibly he's saying something along the lines of, before I knew what was happening, here it was. And there is some truth in that because this happened very quickly. Compare again, tabernacle, long ordeal, much time to build and set up. This calf happens very rapidly as Aaron builds it. Well, Moses replies, verse 25, in fact, doesn't reply to Aaron here at all, which probably says something. And when Moses saw that the people had broken loose, verse 25, for Aaron had let them break loose to the derision of their enemies, that is, even the world loved to laugh. The world always loves to snicker when the righteous fall. Israel's uncontrolled debauchery was justly ridiculed by the pagans who are mocking God's name as she is drinking and dancing and carousing and involved in all kinds of pagan excess. But then, verse 26, Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Who is on the Lord's side? It's time to draw a line in the sand. Now you're going to stand up and say where you really belong. Who is on the Lord's side? Come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered around him. Moses gives all Israel the opportunity to stand with God, but only his own tribe of Levi steps forward. This is a sad day indeed. Sensuality has clouded their judgment and sapped their devotion as it always does. And he said to them, verse 27, Thus says the Lord God of Israel, Put your sword on your side, each of you, and go to and fro from gate to gate throughout the camp, and each of you kill his brother and his companion and his neighbor. And the sons of Levi did according to the word of Moses, and that day about 3,000 men of the people fell. This seems very harsh to us. Hard to think of handling the situation this way. One thing we must remember is the context. We are followers of Christ. We are going into all the world to proclaim the gospel. We don't pick up a sword and command obedience. We're not dealing with Christians here in Exodus 32 as such. Those looking forward to Christ, though they're probably not much aware of that at all, but they are looking forward to Christ, but they're not Christians. What we have here is a theocracy. We have God ruling immediately over the people, and in this context of theocracy, and in light of the death penalty for even touching the mountain, this is a clearly legitimate penalty. They weren't even allowed to touch Mount Sinai. Look what they're doing. This is a very legitimate penalty in the context, not something that we would emulate today as followers of Christ. This is not our calling, but it was theirs. This is how they prove their devotion to God, and this was, in fact, God's desired judgment, part of it. We'll get to more later. But verse 29, And Moses said, Today you have been ordained for the service of the Lord, each one at the cost of his son and of his brother, so that he might bestow a blessing upon you this day. That is, God rewards the faithfulness of the Levites with ordination to his service, and that service will be spelled out in the book of Leviticus. We come back to the mountain where Moses again intercedes for Israel. Verse 30, the next day Moses said to the people, You have sinned a great sin, and now I will go up to the Lord. Perhaps I can make atonement for your sin. That is amazing grace, isn't it? Think of what he just said there. 
With all Israel has done to offend God, Moses holds out hope that God will treat Israel with mercy. He seeks atonement, which may involve, in fact, laying down his own life for the nation. Verse 31, So Moses returned to the Lord and said, Alas, this people have sinned a great sin. They have made for themselves gods of gold, but now if you will forgive their sin, but if not, please blot me out of your book that you have written. In the Old Testament context, that simply means kill me. Take my life away. Moses has come a long way as a leader, hasn't he? Remember in the desert, as God appears to him in the burning bush, Moses says, I want nothing to do with those people. Send somebody else. This is not a job for me. Now, here he is representing the people before God and willing to lay down his life for them. He has developed as a leader. And he seeks atonement for them. It's an amazing thought. He says, I will lay down my life for them, perhaps. He may simply be saying, I'll die with them if you do not spare them. But in any event, what does he say to God's proposal to be the head of a new nation? Not me. Now he's refusing what he should refuse. And he is willing to lay down his life in behalf of the Israelites and to turn his back on the offer to be the king, the head of a new race. He really puts God in a little bit of a spot here, if I could say it that way. I will lay down my life. Spare the people. Take me. If that's what he's saying, he puts God in a little bit of a spot. And God responds in verse 33, Whoever has sinned against me, I will blot out of my book. The judge of all the earth will do right. In his passion for God and in his love for God's people, Moses actually touches the fringes of substitutionary atonement. But God says no. Listen to it. Listen to the heart of God who anticipates the sacrifice of his son. Listen to what he says. No, the just will not die for the unjust. Not yet. Not yet. But now go, verse 34, lead the people to the place about which I have spoken to you. Behold, you see it? My angel shall go before you. Nevertheless, in the day when I visit, I will visit their sin upon them. And that day comes in verse 35 where the Lord sends a plague on the people because they had made the calf the one that Aaron made. They made it, Aaron made it. And so there is righteous discipline. We don't know if any die or if it's just a disease that will pass or a plague that will pass, but God does judge so the divine representative Israel had tried to manufacture was worthless. But through Moses' intervention, God's messenger will indeed go with Israel. Israel's chosen representative was an inanimate idol. God's chosen representative is his powerful angel. And that angel will go before the people because of Moses. We could spend much time to consider Moses' position here and how he accomplishes this 
grace in Israel's life. But certainly for each of us, the narrative serves stern warning against the dangers of spiritual impatience. If you have walked with God for any time at all, you know this place at the foot of Mount Sinai. You've been here before. You know those times when you long to know God's will, but He reveals nothing. You crave the privilege of prospering in His service, but God does not seem to bless anything that you do. You long to exalt in His presence in worship and prayer, but He seems to have abandoned your heart. You're anxious for God to rescue you from something you know does not bring pleasure to Him, but He does not visit. We must hear, people of God, it is in these times that we are most tempted to grow frustrated by the inaction of God and discouraged by His seeming lack of interest and to take matters into our own hands. The applications can be many and varied, reflecting this very purpose. But I think of it in situations that I have personally dealt with that are a grief to the heart of God. But I think, for instance, of a young woman who desires marriage, but nothing happens. And so she becomes involved with a young man she has no business being with. Someone who is clearly not God's choice. And she forces the hand of God. It happens. Or a young man who desires marriage and nothing happens, and so he appeals to the world's ways, using, for instance, pornography to bring the happiness that he longs for in a different way. But he forces the hand of God to make immediate what God is saying. Wait. Wait for it. It might be a married couple who is struggling in their marriage and God, God does not immediately intervene. And so the turn is to some other source, some other way, some other fix to get done what we know God wants done quickly when God doesn't seem to be doing it very fast. It can be a family that faces a decision that cannot determine God's will for the moment, and rather than walk in faith and wait, a rash decision is made, and the world's way begins to dictate what happens in that family. It can be a church in the doldrums. It can be a church that's seeking to minister faithfully, and things don't seem to be prospering. They don't seem to be happening a church perhaps that looks at others and sees other churches doing very similar things, faithfully ministering and God blessing uniquely, but He's not here with us and the temptation is so strong to step past God, to do an end run, to find some other way to manipulate the response that we long to see. Doesn't God want people coming to Him and responding to His truth? So let's find a calf that we can throw into the fire and carve out very quickly 
and manipulate the hand of God to act more quickly. In all of these temptations, there is that underlying thought, God has forgotten me, and I will jumpstart things my way. Oh, how hard, believer, it is to be patient with a slow God. How hard it is to be patient when he doesn't seem to act. But we need to stand back and in this scene place ourselves there and remember the tabernacle. This slow, disciplined process of holiness where God painstakingly keeps us from debauchery, keeps us under the restraints of His glorious Word and leads us ever so gently and carefully into His presence in His time and in His way. When we catch the world's ways, it is almost always the quick solution. Isn't that what temptation is in our lives so often? A quick satisfaction when God says, wait. Something in the immediate that I can grab now and gain the pleasure, the satisfaction, the relief, the rescue that I want. Satan knows what to put in front of us. He knows what we long for. And he's always putting there quick answers. But the eye of faith looks over the wall of time and it trusts the promises of God for the future. It rests there. It waits there. And let me say, you will not make progress in holiness apart from patience. Spiritual patience is utterly essential to build a rock-solid character of holiness in the life of a Christian. We must wait on God. Now, that can be misread, and that can be used as an excuse for spiritual inertia to not move forward, to not do the thing that we know God wants us to do. All of those cautions are rightly staked. But looking at this situation in this place, this is not simply a narrative about debauchery. It's a narrative about how we get to debauchery. Debauchery. Sinful responses are saying to God, I have to get moving. So often, that's what they really are. I want what I want now. I don't want to wait for your timing. But what hope there is here? What hope there is here when we look at Moses, the great mediator, between God and Israel, and we look to the fuller mediator who did lay down his life for us. The just dying for the unjust, that we in all of our sin and debauchery can come before the throne of grace because of the work of our great mediator, Jesus Christ. He has presented us in all of our wickedness and sin. What joy welled up in my heart this morning as we sang some of those songs. 
to be able to look at myself and say, I am a sinner saved by the grace of God. I know I have fallen short of His glory, and I know, nonetheless, that He welcomes me into His presence. Praise Jesus Christ. There's no one else to praise. He is our ultimate mediator that brings forgiveness when we hurry the plan of God and choose the sensuality of this world. But may we be challenged to wait on our Savior, Jesus Christ, until He comes and brings all joy with Him. Let's bow for prayer. Father, may we be still before You and know that You are God. And I cry out to You in behalf of this assembly of people, in behalf of my own sinful heart. God, teach us spiritual patience. We long to change. We long for the joy of Your presence. We long for the response to Your Word and Your truth. God, sometimes it's so hard to wait. But I pray, God, that spiritual impatience would not press us to sensuality and to appeal to this world and its quick answers. But I pray, dear God, that there would be an underlying confidence in your timing that leads us to holiness. Father, there may be among us some who do not know Christ as their mediator, who have not come to lay down sin, to have Jesus forgive, who have not trusted the death and resurrection of Christ in their place. I ask God that you would bring any such one to the light of the gospel today. May we see your glory in the work that you have done through Jesus Christ, who though absolutely just, laid down his life as a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. May this light dawn on those that are not yet in the faith. And may we all, with the tribe of Levi, stand and say, I am on the Lord's side. God, may we show the patience to be still and to wait. In Christ's name we plead with you. Amen.